All right, I'll go ahead and get started. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Courtney Freer. I'm a visiting fellow at the Middle East Center. Um, and this webinar today will present the results of two LSE Kuwait program research projects, um, Governance of Spatial Change, Shaping Urban Policies and Investments in Kuwait from Dariel Rashid and Nuno F. Dacruz, and Asian Capital and the Rise of Smart Urbanism in Kuwait from Hyun Chin and Du Young Oh. So today we're going to have basically each, each speaker speak for about 15 to 20 minutes about these projects, um, and then we'll open it up to a Q&A session. Um, so if you'd like to ask a question, feel free to type your question in the Q&A box at the bottom of the screen, and we'll then address uh, the question to the speakers at the end when everyone is finished presenting. Um, the event is also recorded and will be live streamed on Facebook. Um, and if you want to tweet about the event, you can use the hashtag LSE Kuwait or LSE Middle East. Um, so before I turn it over to the speakers, I'm just going to briefly introduce them. Um, so Nuno F. De Cruz is Assistant Professorial Research Fellow at LSE Cities. He work, his work on urban and metropolitan governance is multidisciplinary in nature and global in reach, engaging with a, a wide range of public policy issues. Uh, Nuno has previously worked in cooperation with a variety of non-governmental and multilateral organizations, such as UCLG, Metropolis, UN Habitat, and Transparency International. Um, he, he was joined on this project with uh, Dariel Rashid, who is an assistant professor of economics in the College of Business Administration at Kuwait University. Dari's research activity spans two fields. Um, the first is urban economics, studying various issues related to housing, spatial inequality, transportation, and social capital. The second is applied econometrics with interest in discrete choice modeling, Bayesian econometrics, and spatial econometrics. Um, Dari holds a PhD and MA in economics from the University of California, Irvine, as well as an MSc and BSc in mechanical engineering from Oregon State University. Hyun Shin is director of the Saw Sui Hawk uh, Southeast Asia Center at LSE and professor of geography and urban studies in the Department of Geography and Environment. Professor Shin's research centers on the critical analysis of the political economy of urbanization, with particular attention to cities in Asian countries, such as Malaysia, Vietnam, Singapore, South Korea, and China. And finally, uh, Du Yong Oh is research assistant uh, at the School of Graduate Studies Lingnan University in Hong Kong. He was previously a research officer at um, LSE based at the Saw Sui Hawk um, Southeast Asia Center and at the Middle East Center, um, where he finished his, at, both at, at LSE, which is where he finished his PhD in regional and urban planning. Um, so with that, I will turn it over to um, Dari and Nuno, who will talk about their uh, project on governance of spatial change. So uh, can you see the presentation? Yeah. Yes, looks good. All right. Thank you, uh, Courtney. So hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Dari uh, Al-Rashid. I'm an assistant professor of economics at Kuwait University. And I'm excited to be uh, talking to you today to uh, about our pro my project co-authored with uh, Nuno uh, F. De Cruz from LSE Cities. And uh, this project is, let me preface first, by saying that this is very much a work in progress and our hope uh, out of this uh, talk is to get as much uh, useful feedback from you guys from the audience uh, as possible so we can take this project further and so uh, and um, i want to mention and recognize uh, our uh, researchers who are helping us on the ground in kuwait munir arabe and abdullah al-khanani whose uh, contributions to this project have been uh, invaluable 
Okay, so this uh, our talk is going to be two parts. The first part is going to be about spatial inequalities in Kuwait, uh, presented by me, and then I'll hand it over to uh, Nuno, who's going to talk about uh, urban governance in Kuwait. And this is uh, obviously supported by the LSE Kuwait program. Um, okay, so let me just give you a little bit of background about Kuwait. So it's just basics. Uh, Kuwait is a small country in the Gulf with a population of about, of about 4.6 million. But what's interesting about this population is that about two thirds of it is actually non-Kuwaiti. And uh, this is primarily driven by imported cheap labor uh, from Asian and also uh, Arab countries. And uh, this, um, this foreign labor force uh, tends to be uh, of low skill, low education and concentrated in the uh, private sector. And so anytime you have a sizable non-citizen community in a country that actually makes up a majority, it traces up uh, some interesting questions. So this demographic imbalance uh, in, in Kuwait, uh, in the Kuwaiti population um, has been an issue uh, at the forefront of public policy debate and, and public discourse. The prime minister just two years ago um, had a press conference where he uh, identified the, correcting this imbalance as one of the main challenges in the future and stated that it, ideally he would like to reverse situa the situation where we have 70% uh, Kuwaitis and 30% non-Kuwaitis. And so some, because of this reality, some, so, some questions about socioeconomic implications might arise uh, having to do with the equitable uh, allocation of resources, uh, social cohesion, uh, cultural assimilation, ethnic segregation, uh, political representation, and also economic and spatial inequalities. And so that's what kind of prompted our interest in this, in, in uh, examining this situation. And so um, since this is in the realm of, of uh, also an urban, urban research, basically, uh, what we started with just a, like a basic map uh, at the most disaggregated level at the residential block level from the US, from the 2011 uh, census data of basically uh, where people live based on uh, citizenship status. And so uh, the more red it gets, this is a higher share of expats, meaning non-Kuwaitis living in blocks. And so we can immediately just identify a few observations. Uh, the first thing is that we can uh, see some evidence of residential segregation where Kuwaitis and non-Kuwaitis live in, in separate areas. Uh, we also see some spatial concentration where uh, the amount of like the relative amount of land occupied by the two groups um, uh, um, is, is evident from the map. And also we can also see some evidence of spatial clustering where uh, people tend to uh, um, appear to, to be living closer to, to members of their own group. And so that's kind of our starting point. And so we wanted to quantify basically how serious or, or the extent of this um, uh, spatial segregation in Kuwait. And uh, the reason or the motivation behind this is that there is well-established uh, literature in, in economics and sociology um, uh, about residential, residential segregation having uh, or being associated with negative socioeconomic consequences. For example, a uh, uh, problem of spatial mismatch between residence and, and employment by, by the look of like the, the figure on the right from the resource urbanism um, paper, you can see um, the population is more uh, spread out or more dis distributed more uniformly across space uh, compared to uh, uh, where employment is. Uh, also negative neighborhood effects through the formation of ghettos and enclaves, spatial inequalities, 
and also social strife and resentment. So we, we started with two basic questions. What is the extent of this residential segregation and spatial inequality in Kuwait? And further, we'd like to, uh, if, if knowing that, we'd like to uh, examine what are the mechanisms underlying uh, this segregation. And so to study that, we went to the literature and there is like a plethora of, of uh, segregation measures in the literature, but there's one seminal paper by Massey and Denton in 1988, who uh, examined about 20 measures of segregation and classified them under five ma main dimensions and made uh, uh, made the, the conclusion that, that segregation is, is a composite multidimensional uh, concept that should be looked at uh, in, different, uh, uh, in different measures. And so uh, these five dimensions, I'm gonna uh, explain them now when we calculate them for Kuwait. So if we take Kuwait as one whole city and calculate uh, indices that uh, indicate these uh, dimensions, the first one would be a measure of evenness. Uh, and so this is basically a measure of how people or how the two groups, Kuwaitis and non-Kuwaitis are uh, distributed across space. And uh, the dissimilarity index, which is the most common index uh, in this literature, uh, indicates that 73% uh, of expats must relocate across uh, residential blocks in order for them to achieve an even distribution. So that's, that's an indication of, of high segregation. Another uh, um, measure or another dimension would be exposure. So this is, this is a, a, an index that indicates uh, how people actually experience uh, uh, segregation through their interaction or isolation from uh, their group or, or other groups. And uh, what we calculate for, for expats is that the 60.6 the would be the probability that the average expat shares an, a block with another expat. So, so this indicates a, a fair amount of isolation uh, for expats uh, in Kuwait as a whole. Uh, the third measure uh, having to do with concentration, so this is basically a measure of the relative proportion of land uh, that is being occupied by the two groups, and we also see uh, considerable concentration where the measure, uh, the, the delta index indicates that 63% of expats reside in blocks that uh, exhibit higher uh, than average density of expats. So basically 63% of expats must relocate across, uh, sorry, across blocks uh, to achieve a uniform density uh, across space. Fourth measure is uh, clustering. So this is a measure of the extent of uh, the formation of, of uh, group specific enclaves. And this measure also tells us that uh, people being Kuwaitis and non-Kuwaitis tend to actually res uh, uh, reside or live closer to members of their own group uh, other than the other group. Uh, finally, the fifth me measure is the measure of centralization. centralization. So this is a measure of the relative proximity to the city center for each group. And this is the only measure we, where we don't see much differential between the two groups. So it seems like Kuwaitis and non-Kuwaitis are uh, equally uh, uh, equally uh, distributed across space in terms of distance to the to to uh, to downtown Kuwait to the city center and so what do we get out of this so given the literature and the standard like this the, the established standards in the literature uh, Kuwait basically would be classified as being highly segregated uh, given these measures especially the evenness and exposure uh, being closer to or higher than uh, 6.6 basically and so Knowing that Kuwait would be considered highly segregated, we wanted to see, well, how does this segregation vary across space? So we kind of zoomed in further uh, at the governorate level. So Kuwait is divided into six governorates. 
these are not necessarily considered cities in the economic sense. These are not like separate labor or housing markets, but these are administrative boundaries that the government uses as the basis for public service uh, provision and also a lot of the uh, urban uh, land use regulation. And what we can see here is that we can see that three governorates stand out as being highly segregated. These are Farwaniya, Ahmadi, and Hawali. Uh, they are basically driving the high segregation of the overall Kuwait, whereas Mubarak al-Kabir um, governorate scores very low on segregation and the capital and uh, uh, the capital and uh, what else, uh, Jahra uh, are actually in the middle. And so there is, uh, the segregation basically is not uniform. It varies across space. And so seeing that, we wanted to go back to, the, to where we started, which is what correlates with the segregation and especially what, if, there's, if there's any relationship between the, 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 the majority of, or expats being a majority in, in, in Kuwait. And so um, by, by looking at the, the graph on the left, this is the, the same graph that I showed earlier. This is the share of expats living in, in residential blocks. And we can see that the, the, the blocks with the high, highest shares of expats are concentrated in, um, in Farwaniya. Uh, here, I don't know if you guys see my pointer. So in Farwaniya and then in Hawali and also in Ahmadi. Uh, the same thing happens with population density, Farwaniya, Hawali, and Ahmadi. Uh, employment density, same thing, Farwaniya, Hawali, and Ahmadi a little bit. And finally, uh, the share of multifamily housing also tends to be concentrated in Farwaniya, uh, Ahmadiyya, and Hawali. And so uh, it seems like the, the, the governors that tend to be highly segregated are also the governors that tend to be highly, uh, the, the ones that have a higher concentration of, of expats living in them. And so taking this a step further, we wanted to see, does this also correlate with spatial uh, inequality? And so uh, we wanted we we tried to gather as much data as possible. This is basically an ongoing process of a, essentially a data hunting exercise, uh, where we want to see uh, along different variables and dimensions. Um, do we see inequality uh, experience uh, uh, experience in the, in these um, governance? So we so far we've gathered some data about urban spatial structure, socioeconomic characteristics public amenities and public goods and services, and also uh, some transport accessibility measures. And uh, without going into the details to take up time, uh, if we read across each row, uh, we can find the block, the, the blue uh, box would signify uh, uh, the governor with the least inequality and the, and the red block uh, or red box would, would be the highest um, in terms of inequality. And then we can see that Mubarak al-Kabir basically dominates as being the least unequal of all, of all the governors, whereas the ones that are highest uh, in inequality are tend to be, sorry, tend to be Ahmadi and Farwaniya. Um, and so this is also consistent with the governors that we found to be highest and lowest in segregation. And this is also consistent with the, uh, with the governors that tend to have the highest or lowest concentration of expats. And so this is kind of like we're finding a nexus between the situation of expats and where they live and then whether they are segregated or not and, and how they experience uh, uh, the provision of public goods and services and also the, 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 the urban spatial structure, that, that the urban form that they live in. And so that's kind of the relationship we're trying to explain. This is all correlation. So what we want to do next is basically to, to 
try to establish some causalities between them. And so future directions for this research is basically want to see what are the mechanisms of, of the observed residential segregation that we're seeing. Uh, some prevailing theories in the economics and sociology literature is that there could be some self-sorting by Kuwaitis uh, or expats. And also um, Kuwaitis, even though they're a minority, they hold all the political power, so they could be using uh, uh, their political power to by by through collective action to impose land use policies that actually um, uh, uh, makes this uh, segregation uh, what it is today. And also, we'd like to see uh, or, or examine the implications of segregation. We started with spatial inequality. We also want to see uh, if there is a, a spatial mismatch and uh, to what extent it is, and also the formation of uh, ghettos and all the negative consequences that could potentially arise from them. So I'll stop my part here and I'll now turn it over to um, Nuno and I'll be happy to take questions at the end of the talk. So uh, Nadine, if you'd be kind enough to actually switch it to Nuno. So I yeah, thanks Larry. So I'll try, I'll try to go over the, um, the governance bit of our research in about 10 minutes, hope that's okay. Um, you should now have my slide in full screen mode, yeah? Great. So um, other than any self-organizing dynamics that may be occurring that, like Daddy said, we were, we were going to be exploring until the end of this project, we wonder how much this state of affairs has to do with governance as well. In fact, that's very much our point of departure for this project is that we assume that the way governance works in Q8 is directly linked to the way it looks. Um, and it's a reasonable expectation because we know that um, the institutions of governance within a city make certain kinds of interests and choices easier to adopt, adopt than others. Um, so this has a direct impact on the built environment and spatial configuration of the city. So now urban governance has various dimensions or arenas, all of them are important. So the laws and rules like master plans, for example, um, the institutions that implement these rules, these master plans, the availability of resources and skills, the politics of place, uh, all of these things are important, uh, but also the more informal connections, the networks of advice and, and influence. And on top of that, every once in a while, there are some external shocks that may change everything. For example, you know, the, the COVID-19 pandemic changed the way we used uh, the city and then lots of rules were included were um, uh, new rules were rolled out and old old ways of doing things were stopped um, and this is just an example you know you could go to war <laughs> changes quite a various obvious shock but also others like if you recall the the, the killing of George Floyd in the US and all of all the calls for defunding the police uh, were immediately uh, put forward so all of these this is what we mean by external shocks um, in this project, we focus on the informal connections because we feel this is the arena for which there is less research. So colleagues like Asil, Al-Ragam and Sharifa Al-Shafan that have worked with the LSE Middle East Center and Kuwait program before have explored the institutional side of things and some of the politics at play. And I believe the, the, the project that we're going to hear about next is also, um, also discusses some of this. And then my colleagues here at LACCDs, Alex Gomez and Philip Rode, have also studied the impacts of resources and, and through their resource urbanism project. Um, and the arena we're looking at here is the arena of soft power, uh, which by definition makes it really hard to collect data on and carry out uh, empirical analysis. Um, so I should say that we are 
interested in various types of connections and relationships and exchanges, not just the formal ones. The formal ones are also important, or they might be important, some of them, uh, but we just don't differentiate between the formal and informal connections. We just want to um, to explore any sort of connection that, that might have an impact. Uh, so our guiding research question for this is, who is involved in strategic spatial development in the city? Which is the same thing as saying, which social institutions or actors form the network? Um, and then we want to know who are the most influential ones in, within this network. And this requires to look at some structural features of the network and how these structural features might impact on the, the decision-making um, um, in this space. Um, so the methodology we employ to tackle these questions is social network analysis. And our data source is, is a set of highly structured interviews. Um, this is an example of the questions we asked in these structured interviews. You know, who supplies you with information? With whom do you discuss um, innovative ideas? Who would you assemble in your team if you were tasked with a certain project? Who would you regard as visionaries? So you see the sort of kind of connections that we are trying to explore through these que questions and with sort of like governance uh, resources we are trying to, to target. Um, this allows us to collect loads of qualitative information on top of the quantitative network data, but it also allows us to to, to extract the, the network data because we transform the interview notes into, into network data. So each interview tells us with whom that actor is connected to, and then we go to the next actor and do the same, and then we build our network iteratively through a snowball, a snowball sampling approach. So in the process of conducting these interviews, we quickly start to realize the types of stakeholders that compose the network. So we classify them according to 20 categories. And then um, these categories, you know, we also um, kind of colored code them with supranational government stakeholders, think about United Nations or World Bank, then national, which in the case of Kuwait are also citywide government stakeholders, and then subsidy uh, level governments. They call us where the governorates or the governors in Mukhtars um, are examples. We also include a co-ops here because in the case of Kuwait, this is um, as far as uh, kind of lo local or hyper-local governance um, uh, happens is through, through these co-ops. And then there's a bunch of other stakeholders. Though we have conducted so far about 24 interviews and we hope to get to 30 soon. The data and results we are showing here today are only for 18 that I was able to code so far before the seminar. And you can see that the composition of our interview sample is not that far from uh, the whole network, um, um, the whole network, and then the whole kind of actors included in the network. Um, this is a visualization of our network data out of those 18 interviews. Um, it's quite a small network for, for a city of 4.6 million um, people. Um, and this is including uh, actors uh, that were only mentioned by one interviewee and therefore uh, maybe outliers or are certainly very peripheral, peripheral to the decision-making network. If you, if you count only the actors that were mentioned at least twice, this goes down to 66 actors. Uh, organizations uh, or you know um, entities that that have a stake or have a, a influence in in this space looking at some of the structural features of the network namely the centrality of actors we can quickly see that the national and citywide government actors dominate 
This here shows the top in-degree centrality score. So these are the actors or people um, um, to go for information or advice. Seven out of 11 of the most central actors, according to this measure, are Q8 government entities. We can also visualize the centrality of these actors and how others are mostly pushed to the periphery um, in, this, in this visualization here. It's quite funny to see also KFAS and LSE, mostly the LSE Q8 program showing up here. On the on the right hand side, kind of KFAS in kind of making the link with QH University. Um, it, this this was just what what showed up out of the data. I, I promise you that it wasn't was me doctoring the visualization. Um, other measures of centrality can also be drawn to express different kinds of soft power. Here, the picture is a bit more diverse than the previous tables. Some other actors managed to garner some influence by either. Um, connecting to powerful actors here on the left-hand side. This is what it's, it's conveying uh, by serving as brokers. Um, so connecting actors that would be otherwise uh, disconnected. So that's the center, the central kind of table uh, or by holding key information or by being in a position that confers them a certain independence to act the right-hand side table. So all of a sudden you see that consultants, the QH University and the local NGO like QH Commute all of a sudden pop up here in these centrality measures. Um, but perhaps surprisingly, there are others that don't, like for example, no other private sector actors, notably no developers or construction companies. Um, and there's not a lot of actors with concerns around social policy, environmental interests, and other, and other critical arenas for sustainability. So central government entities tend to be very technical and siloed or purely political, for example, like members of parliament or the, the municipal council. We have also asked our interview interviewees about um, how they felt, who they felt have been sidelined uh, in this space. And, and this is just a very simple word cloud uh, visualization of everything they said in, in the in, answered in this question. So we will, we will need to do a little bit more refined analysis. But there's this sense that um, people or organizations that think about the urban in a more integrated manner, not just buildings, for example, um, have been a bit sidelined at the private sector and you know anything that has to do with heritage. We have also gauged the perception of the interviewees with regards to who they think is our influence, uh, what types of actors are more influential by just asking them to this rating question. And there is some overlap between their perceptions and our preliminary findings. So it's pretty good overlap, but um, private sector influence may be overestimated by our um, uh, interviewees, or maybe they get their influence through other ways other than their social networks. Um, academia and advocates, actually, and activists may have more influence or maybe increasing the influence than it's these people expect or the, our interviewees expect, especially through social media. Twitter is a big thing in Q8. Um, so politicians and ministers appear to be super influential, but this situation is that in the last uh, 15 years, there have been 18 um, governments, or in the last 16 years, there have been 18 governments. And so the average tenure of a cabinet is 10 months, which kind of creates um, a bit of a dissonant system and might be contributing to this lack of vision and stability uh, in the sector. So by way of conclusion, uh, the, this kind of interview-based social network analysis is a way to empirical formalize these connections that are difficult to formalize, and we can visualize invisible phenomena. Uh, it's very important to keep in mind there's different ways, um, uh, different sources of power or avenues to exert influence. The social network is just one of them. There is no 
control of resources, legal mandate, and, and other ways, and you know, sort of sway over public opinion. Um, just looking at formal institutions or in, in, those formal institution dynamics might uh, not capture certain informal dynamics might be important to capture. And remember that thing that is often said, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu, but a simple stakeholder analysis might not be um, enough to gauge this. Um, more than just the network composition, it's important to look at structural features of the network. So where in the network do these actors are because this is what is going to confer them certain a certain level of influence. So we were able to confirm some of the expectations of our interviewees about the dynamics of governance in Q8, but there are some surprises um, in our initial findings. And perhaps importantly, this inertia and frustration about uh, sustainable planning practices in Q8 uh, may be related with the skills and with the missions and remits and jurisdictions of the most influential actors in this um, in the network because you know for example if you think about accessibility and how accessibility is often put forward as a, as a way uh, to kind of um, do sustainable urban development you you need sort you need your spatial planning expertise and your spatial planning entities but you also need transport policy and you also need social policy and in the case of kuwait these have been slightly um uh, obscured and spatial planning is there for sure transport policy is now sort of gaining traction but there's not a lot of um uh, you know um uh, actors pushing for the social policy side of things uh, you know that are in a very central position of this network of decision making and that's it from us thank you very much Thank you so much, that was fascinating. Um, and I'll encourage everyone as we keep going, if you think of a question, I know I've I've thought of a few just listening to you both, um, just go ahead and put that in the Q&A uh, box. And now we're going to switch gears and look at Asian capital and the rise of smart urbanism in Kuwait. Um, so I'll turn to Hyun Shin and Du Young Oh, I'm not sure who's starting, but thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for that, uh, uh, for this invitation. I'm very happy uh, to uh, present uh, part of our findings um, that came out of this uh, great program funded uh, project on small cities um, and the housing questions in Kuwait. And this is largely to examine the workings of uh, the, the, where the joint partnership between the Kuwaiti and South Korean government on a new project that was aimed at uh, introducing smart city concept as, as a way of addressing housing problems in Kuwait. So a brief overview of the project itself. Uh, the project started in, uh, in September 2019. It was meant to be a 14 months project initially, but as you may imagine, the, the pandemic has uh, substantially um, uh, extended the project period. So we just you know, were reaching the, uh, the end of the project uh, last uh, in at the end of January, um, although uh, the, the last couple of months were also involving some of the additional data collection, so we are still digesting the latest uh, uh, the data collected um, in December, January, and part of the uh, February. Um, as I was uh, briefly uh, outlining earlier, the aim of the project is to examine the contemporary uh, contemporary urbanization process in Kuwait by focusing on the rise of smart urbanism in the form of new city construction which was also again involving the, uh, the joint work uh, between the Kuwaiti and South Korean government. Um, we had a field visit, uh, fortunately, just before the start of the pandemic in January, where Do Young and I were able to uh, pay a visit uh, with the help of uh, 
work with the partner uh, uh, um, and, and it was really wonderful to have the, uh, the experience, uh, the hands-on experience uh, to pay a visit and to observe and get to meet uh, some of the local experts. Um, there was, we also conducted a remote field work uh, with the help of our research assistant, uh, uh, Reem Alfahad, who has been wonderfully making wonderful contribution to the project up until now. Um, and the project team uh, consisted of you know, myself uh, and Dr. Do Young Oh, who will be uh, uh, speaking just uh, shortly after myself. And as I said, research assistant Reem Alfahad. We mostly made the use of um, uh, desk-based research in you know, collecting various archives and, and secondary and primary or secondary uh, literature. Um, and also uh, semi-structure interviews with uh, 15 experts in Kuwait and South Korea. Uh, in addition, I have to mention, in addition to our visit to Kuwait in January 2020, we also did a follow-up uh, visit to South Korea in August 2021 to conduct additional interviews with uh, South Korean experts. Uh, 20 plus interviews with individuals um, in Kuwait um, um, with the help of our locally based research system REAM. Uh, and these interviews were involving uh, in, uh, encounters with uh, Kuwaiti citizens and migrants as well. And one of the uh, perspectives we are trying to we try to introduce in our project is this idea of Asian urbanism and the use of Asian cities as references. So, and in the in the discipline of urban studies, uh, more discussions uh, have been emerging in, in in recent years about the issue of policy mobility, especially the way in which in, uh, urban policies were traveling not only from the global north to global south, which used to be the case uh, according to many scholars in the past, but increasingly there, are, there is the south-south mobility uh, being pronounced and being um, subject to you know, further examination. So we are trying to uh, uh, contribute to that part of the literature. And that literature is also engaging with this uh, emergent concept of wording um, as uh, proposed by Ananya Roy and, and Aiwa Hong which is referring to the practices of citation, allusion, comparison, and competition between the uh, Asian cities, and Asian cities increasingly constituting newly established non-conventional paradigmatic cities in their own right to inform and transplant their urban development experiences to the global south. So you get to see in, a, in a cities in China or Singapore and South Korea, uh, such as Songdo City, which is uh, a city that you can see in the slide on the left-hand side, uh, known as the, uh, the first smart city in the world in, 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 in global media, basically seen to be a reference point you know, for uh, developing uh, urban projects uh, in cities of global south. So there's uh, also the Korean version of Asian urbanism, especially uh, when it comes to the state, uh, more recent effort by the state and state agencies to make use of uh, South Korean urban developmental experience in the 20th century as a model that they want to uh, promote and export. And this is uh, especially the, uh, uh, pronounced in the promotion of the smart urbanism uh, in more recent years. And you even have the government ministry supported website, which is entirely about smart city um, regarding uh, uh, various policy initiatives that can be part of the smart city framework, uh, various you know, investment that goes into the promotion of smart city technologies and also 
the application of smart city concept to various urban developmental initiatives across the country. And of course, um, uh, the extension of this concept to uh, the export of Korean developmental experience to other countries, especially in Asia, Middle East and Latin, Latin America. Let me uh, briefly uh, uh, discuss the housing conditions in Kuwait, some of which you have already heard in by listening to a previous presentation. So uh, Kuwait has about 4.5 million population, uh, about a little less than one third are Kuwaiti citizens, um, and therefore very, having a very high share of migrant population. And housing is considered as entitlement for Kuwaiti citizens, um, where married Kuwaiti citizens can apply for uh, Nowadays, 400 square meter land or, or, or uh, 400 square meter land with a government built uh, housing or loan um, that can be provided at nominal price. Um, the, the problem is, you know, over the years, uh, there has been a huge uh, backlog in terms of applications for such you know, uh, land allocation. So by 2013, it was known uh, to have about 100,000 uh, uh, applications. Uh, uh, in the backlog, which ob obviously creates a lot of frustrations and concerns among the uh, among Kuwaiti citizens as well as uh, uh, for the government. And uh, basically, the uh, problems are also further ex exacerbated by various uh, uh, issues at the state level, and also regarding the the land provision, and also. Um, the expectation and the aspiration of uh, among the creative citizens. So for the, as, as far as the state is concerned, there's a budget deficit experienced since 2016 and different departments having uh, 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 different priorities. Uh, for example, where the housing provision uh, to be the main domain of you know, uh, the government agency called POW or Public Authority for Housing Welfare. Uh, whose priority may be uh, uh, may differ from the priorities of other ministries. As far as land is concerned, the land situation is uh, not quite straightforward, and you have seen some of the images from the previous presentation about the, the segregation issues and, uh, and and the availability of development uh, land that can be developed. The problem is the uh, such a land for development uh, near Kuwaiti municipality uh, is uh, increasingly uh, becoming scarce. And therefore, any new development that has to happen uh, will be in peripheral areas, which are less desirable and less uh, uh, sought you know, by local Kuwaiti citizens who have this uh, uh, accustomed life uh, uh, on the basis of a uh, more unsustainable way of you know, spacious living. Um, so housing is also considered as a source of income, um, and there are a lot of rental activities uh, by uh, Kuwaiti landlords. Uh, there are concerns for new construction taking place in peripheries, which are basically uh, going against the, the expectation, the aspiration of Kuwaiti citizens, citizens who are seeking uh, uh, a way of life that is more centered on uh, Kuwaiti municipality or nearby. One of the in interesting interview quotes from uh, Pao uh, officer, officer, uh, officer uh, that was obtained in January 2020, uh, basically referring to this, you know, uh, as you can see here, um, uh, uh, they were saying, uh, we don't want to create uh, dormitories uh, and what are the job creation opportunities? Where do you work and where, when you close your eyes? And re remember, the city wants you to travel. Uh, what do you remember? I mean, I mean, you can probably read on, but it's, it's, it's effectively kind of questioning you know, uh, the effectiveness and, and, and desirability of you know, building cities and you know, away from the existing city center, or especially the creative 
municipality. And I guess such a sentiment may be shared among many other citizens in Kuwait. I stop here and hand over to Doyoung, uh, who will be uh, providing more details of the project and findings. Doyoung, over to you. Okay, yeah, can you hear me well, probably? Yeah, uh, so this is, yeah, uh, yeah, this is Doyoung uh, connecting from Hong Kong. So I will continue the rest of our presentation here. So Korean firms, uh, have worked in Kuwait for a long while. Between 1973 and 83, many Korean contractors carried out construction and infrastructure projects in the Middle East, including Kuwait. Also in Al Jahra, Korean firms designed and built uh, 1,800 houses for low-income households, for mainly forbiddance. In this regard, there was a track record of Koreans involved in housing provision in Kuwait. So this particular project, South Saad Arabtullah New City, is a result of a long-standing collaboration between two governments. So in the early, very early 2010s, housing-related discussions emerged between two governments, and the co cooperation began to take shape gradually. The Kuwait government uh, proposed then uh, South Saad Arabtullah as a site for collaboration. Then many provisional agreements have been made, as you can see on the left side. So uh, this is a bit more information about our Jawara project, uh, which we think are highly interesting. So top left is the vast plan made by a Korean architect in 1979, uh, 1976. Um, then bottom left is the current satellite image of the town. So you can see the similar uh, design, even though not everything from then was realized. Uh, the size of land plot was 300 square meter, which which was small at that time. And as I mentioned, they were mostly given to Bidens. And I think it, it shows an earlier case show uh, how Koreans uh, worked in Kuwait earlier. So um, building a new city as an alternative for solving housing crisis is an inevitably challenging mission. And it is even more so if this is done with foreigners. So uh, Kuwait government, particularly Powell, uh, considered that the Korean government's housing provision experience could be helpful. So here we talk about LH, the Land and Housing Corporation, a public company fully owned by the state. So unlike the Western states, the Korean government has been a key player for housing provision in South Korea. So they actually directly provide the housing. So Land and Housing Corporation, LH, has provided more than 2.9 million homes over 60 years until now. And also they built several new cities around the capital since the late 1980s. So compared to the number of homes built by Kuwait, uh, which is around 150,000, the Korean experience seems uh, very helpful. So, but how, however, when you look deeper, the context of two countries are very different. Uh, the state housing provision in Korea largely focused on high-density, high-rise apartments, while in Kuwait, Pau has supplied two-story villas with 400 square meter land, so they are very different kinds. Also, the way of living is very different. So Kuwait is characterized by car-oriented lifestyle with high domestic energy consumption. For example, Kuwaiti individuals consume 2.3 times more energy than Singaporeans. 
So therefore, it is inevitable that what individual's value at home are very different compared to uh, Asian cities. Also, changing economic and political situations are one of obstacles, as also mentioned by previous uh, presentation. So low oil price lasted for several years, affected different government departments, as well as the cabinet. There have been six housing ministers in Kuwait since 2016. You know, and this kind of large-scale urban development project involving two different governments require close co cooperation based on mutual trust. However, we can see that the environment has not been so favorable to uh, pursue this project further. Uh, in South South Abdullah, the LH Corporation also has been trying to introduce as many as 36 smart city technologies. They include a district cooling system, intelligent transport system, smart pedestrian crossings and street lamps, smart energy meters, and to name a few. And these technologies have been proven helpful in Korea to support people's daily lives. But, and these technologies could provide an opportunity for more uh, sustainable way of living and more safer environment in Kuwait as well. But there are also several obstacles to introducing them in a new city in Kuwait. So first, uh, there are cost issues. So currently, power housing units are built in the most economic way. So that, that is the reason why many units are being demolished uh, immediately after it's, it, it is built to build larger and better homes by Kuwaitis. So having this smart technology means housing needs to be more expensive. And it is not clear who will pay the initial cost. And some technologies involve much larger operation costs and it is also not clear who will pay for this as well as who will manage this. So, if, so there is no immediate demand for such technology in Kuwait, and there is not much incentive for, to pay extra for these technologies as well. So one of uh, technologies the LH wanted to introduce was a BRT system, bus rapid transit system. However, Kuwaitis uh, generally don't take a bus, right? It is even like, a highly stigmatized mode of transport. So perhaps normal creatives would rather oppose to having you know, BRT in their neighborhood. So in this regard, although some technologies can be helpful since context and needs are very different, many smart technologies in South Korea are very difficult to be reproduced in Kuwait. So uh, one quotation from Power official reflect these aspects. So he was saying there is no entity regarding smart city element who is going to be in charge of it, uh, who is going to take care of it. Like, um, and government like say it's not for us, not it's for, for you. Then um, it's very unclear at this moment who will actually take care of uh, these smart technologies if they are actually made. Um, so as mentioned earlier by Professor Shin, there are around um, 100,000 families on, on the waiting list. And many of them prior, priority is to receive a land plot as soon as possible. So in this regard, one newspaper article titled, we don't want it to be smart, reflects the demand for a rapid distribution of land plots in South South Arab New City. Also, there was a recent protest, kind of protest uh, in front of Pau, 
demanding the same thing. And a member of parliament also attended and supported this uh, event. Again, for Kuwaiti citizens, their top priority is to receive a land from, plot from the state. So it is difficult for them actually to uh, ask them to consider sustainable way of living and territorial development. Uh, it is because it, uh, it is nearly impossible for an ordinary Kuwaiti citizen to buy a house from the market. So we are no price to income ratio to buy a house in Kuwait, Kuwait municipality is estimated as high as 16.5. It means that an ordinary Kuwait citizen need to save money for more than 16 years without spending anything. And there is also no established mortgage system like the West. So people find it even more difficult to find an alternative way of buying, buying home in Kuwait. On the other hand, many experts argue that the waiting list actually does not reflect the real situation of Kuwait because they often refuse to take a home uh, built in a least favored location and just decide to wait. So it happened when Saba al-Ahmed, which is located 70 kilometers away from Kuwait city, was allocated to citizens. Many citizens on the housing waiting list refused to take take the one, uh, you can actually still see many empty plots there. Indeed, uh, I think Kuwaitis Kuwait want a good house, not just any house, but this desire is more and more difficult to fulfill, especially for, for younger generations. So one uh, quotation from a one housing expert reflects such a situation like salaries are not good anymore. Um, the middle class is struggling. It is almost impossible to buy house anymore especially for younger generations. Um, we also need to point out other housing issues in Kuwait here. So while two thirds of Kuwaiti population are foreigners, there is no policy for integrating Kuwaiti and non-Kuwaiti people as also uh, mentioned by the pre previous presentation. For uh, Habitat 3 held in Quito in 2016, the general secretariat of the Supreme Council for Planning and Development published a report about housing and sustainable development and mentioning there are no slums in Kuwait or citizens and uh, non creative population residents live in housing built to decent uh, livable standard. However, we see many slum-like living conditions for low-income migrant workers, especially located in Jalib al Shuk. So migrant workers are the backbones of Kuwait society. Also, they are kind of key clients for real estate market, right? As they cannot own land and cannot can only rent properties. However, they are often stigmatized and their poor housing conditions and limited housing op op options have been neglected by Kuwaitis. So uh, this, this housing issues are kind of currently work in progress. We expect to provide more in-depth overview later when we finalize our project. Uh, to conclude, here we provide a partial overview of complex housing issues based on uh, Kuwait's geographical and his historical context. So we, we see that continuing with the distribution of land plus to Kuwaiti citizens cannot be a sustain sustainable solution for the country's housing crisis and other relevant issues. Um, people say that they want house and there are plenty of lands available in Kuwait. However, this is not just an issue of land. 
land availability. They want a good housing, but options are limited. We consider that importing a smart city model from Korea could provide a partial solution, but actual implementation is a huge challenge because of politics, bureaucracy, economics, and culture. It also cannot be a fundamental solution to complex housing issues in Kuwait. Um, so here we want to cite Chua Beng Hat's quote, like creating the same condition of development and replicating developmental trajectory of city elsewhere would be a fallacy. So we see people's attitudes need to be gradually shifted as well. Uh, lastly, we also want to point out that other housing issues have been largely overlooked. They have to be approached as an integrated issue to benefit each other. Uh, that's all for our presentation. Thank you for listening. We'll stop here. Great, thank you so much. Thank you all um, for that. Um, I have a couple of questions myself, but I see there's one question in the Q&A um, to everyone. So I'm gonna start with this. Um, it's from Daniel Tavana. And he asks, from your research, how do different government ent entities, for instance, ministries and public authorities, process housing applications? Politically, how do these government entities think about the allocation of housing? What factors matter to these allocations at the individual level? And how has this changed over time? Um, I don't know who wants to start to answer that. I can take a stab yeah. at it. Great, thank you. All right, okay. well, I'll start with Dari and then go to Duyang. Sure. So. Um... I mean, one thing that characterizes how uh, the government through the ministries and all the, the decision makers uh, that relate to housing uh, is there's it's it tends to be paternalistic, like we know better what the what the citizen actually wants. Uh, and I have not seen any kind of surveys uh, to kind of uh, uh, back that up. Uh, I mean, I, I was involved in another housing project with KFAS and and uh, through some interviews, we were we would hear that like we know what what's best for the citizen without any kind of uh, surveys about preferences or even scientific evidence about like what's what's best uh, in terms of uh, housing planning and regulation. The other thing is, I think over time, uh, the Kuwait state through the government and also society has lost. Uh, um, sight of what's the what's the objective of housing policy. Um, it seems like the uh, you would think that the single family detached villa would be a means to a, a a better quality of life and better social interactions and connection with the open spaces and 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 so on and so on. But over time, it seems like it has become the objective itself. Uh, the villa itself became the objective without regard to all the potentially negative um, negative um, uh, things that are associated with like the, the wasteful use of space, the, the, the wasteful use of energy. Um, um, it seems like we chose the life of the suburb without the, the benefits of the suburb in terms of open space. Now we have like these big boxes that are rented out as investment housing and we're using up space that's that was initially allocated to green spaces. Now we're building houses in them. And so it seems like the villa itself became the objective rather than the means to a, a greater objective like uh, quality of life. And so that's just my two cents of it. I'm sure there are other angles to it. Thank you. Yeah, Duyong, did you want to add on that? Uh, actually, I want to ask Dari because probably as a creative, he knows better than us. But, but um, 
I have an impression that it's really difficult to make change because of current um, political setting, mainly because, and as I mentioned, there are so many um, cabinets have been changed and uh, probably MPs have different uh, opinions. They often challenge uh, this cabinet. And I think this kind of complicated uh, political system uh, kind of stop people in the government challenge something. I think there are many different ideas that maybe government can try many different things. For example, maybe government could try to offer 200 square meter land instead of 400 square meter land. And, you know, like, or you have a, like, you offer land plots as a, like, group of families, not only one married couple, but if there are, like, brothers who also married and waiting, then they could, like, make, make a joint application, like, something like this. I think there are many possibilities government can try. But I think no one want to be blamed and no one want to make creative people feel uncomfortable, like, accept the fact. Right. I think what we were presenting is this model cannot last forever. Like there is at one point, uh, it became meaningless to just receive land flood at one point. But I think people don't want to accept this fact and no one, no politician try to persuade these people. I think that's kind of, I think, major issue. And and may I may just briefly add you know, that you know, here, I mean, I mean, obviously, you know, the Doyoung and I are not creatives, and, and we are uh, no expert on uh, the whole creative history and politics and, and societal you know, problems. Um, we also acknowledge the distance that we, 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 we have experienced and you know, between what we already understand and what uh, locals would understand. So what one of the things we were trying to do in this project was just to carefully listen to the views of you know, the local experts as much as possible, as well as the views of local residents, you know, creatives and migrants. Uh, and on that basis, trying to understand if we can provide something a little more different from more conventional understanding by making use of that distance that we have uh, experienced. Um, and on that basis, I guess one uh, brief observation in addition to what Doyoung says, and also building upon some of our, what Dari was referring to, there's a kind of in a paternalistic and patriarch patriarchal uh, ways in which you know, housing uh, experience is being shaped. Uh, and therefore, one example that came out from these uh, these wonderful interviews that our assist, research assistant Reem has been uh, uh, helping conduct in a, uh, with local creative residences, um, the kind of normative understanding of what family structure should be and, and how that is built into the application system uh, and uh, regarding housing allocation. So despite the, 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 the changes to the, uh, the family structure, um, um, and also the structure that involves the relationship between local Kuwaiti citizens and migrants, or migrants who turned out to be in a Kuwaiti citizen eventually. And there's a kind of issues of the ethnicity and citizenship and also gender issues that are increasingly uh, uh, kind of uh, creating problems you know, uh, uh, in terms of main, the government uh, emphasis on certain norms of in a family structure. And therefore, this uh, housing problem also emerging largely because of this inability uh, or lack of in a government uh, attention to orient their policies towards accommodating more of the, the new uh, structures and new situations emerging in, this, uh, in the society as the uh, society diversifies even more. So I stop there.
got some really interesting points. Dari, did you want to come back on any of that? Um, no, no. Well, Young is tempting me to be a pundit, and I'm, I'm trying to resist that. Uh, um, I mean, I'll, I'll say something uh, that is definitely absent from the whole housing situation in Kuwait, which is a market. There's no market for new housing in Kuwait. Um, and uh, being an economist, I believe to a great extent in, in the efficiency of markets. And uh, I believe a lot of the um, a lot of the inefficiencies that we have uh, in the housing situation in Kuwait could be solved by markets. Markets are not going to be a silver bullet, and they'll probably be regulated and 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 uh, uh, watched closely. But um, just the complete absence of the market, I think, deprives uh, society from uh, providing housing solutions and housing products uh, that could potentially provide uh, choice to people. The other thing about um, the, the difficulty of resistance uh, by Kuwaiti citizens to different modes of housing. Um, that's another one of those assumptions that are made by paternalistic housing officials in Kuwait that we know what Kuwaitis want and Kuwaitis wouldn't want smaller duplexes or something like that. And uh, as I said, there's no survey to back that up. But I usually when they say, how does that, how do we design a survey? I, I, I would Go say I, I would say back to them. Well, the best survey to have is actually to have a market and have people vote with their with their dollars. Uh, that's how you would know what what housing alternatives are desired uh, uh, and what other alternatives are not desired. And so I think this guy, like the problem of the missing middle that we have uh, in Kuwait could be an opportunity for uh, the market actually to provide and maybe maybe give us a success story uh, that could that people could latch on uh, and and maybe start adopting other uh, alternatives of housing can i jump in on, on this curtain because um of course the economists would have would make a case for a market <laughs> um, um but um it's i you know it's it's a really tough nut to crack isn't it because like Doyang said we Everybody kind of knows that this is not sustainable. It's it's it has to, it has to, to end. It will come to to a breaking point, and in fact, it's creating it's creating like um, a built environment that that is not nice even for Kuwaitis. You know, nobody wants to be stuck in traffic and not having nice uh, green spaces and nice you know way to use the city in a much better way. Um, but but at the same time, there's an issue of intergenerational equity, right? Which is okay. But what if my parents had had this and my my grandparents had this? Why why should we sh why should be me kind of um, not having it uh, for the first time? So it's it is tough. It is it really is really tough to take away this right, basically. Um, so you know how to do it. I have absolutely no idea how how would you go about that. But I do think that what Daddy was hinting at in terms of a story, you know, show people an alternative that is actually good and attractive, and and like the younger thing that that is good quality housing. Um, if 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 this story uh, can be told, and people believe it, maybe maybe that's that's a way that's a way to do it. Uh, but I don't know if how what sort of other cases from uh, from from other countries or other cities can be useful here because for example LH um, Dayang you were you were talking about the experience of LH in in South Korea, but who was who who um, was um, the target for for the housing built by LH was it also kind of the upper middle class was it also middle class um, because you know it's kind of 
if you think about it, you might now think that this was a mistake, this policy. But if you think about it, it's, it's maybe a little bit certainly very nativist, but it's kind of a way to share the wealth of the of, of this resource that was that was found. So kind of like the intention, you can see the good intention behind it. It's just then created this kind of chaos that we keep going back to. But um, but I don't know. We, again, L age in South Korea was this was was an expectation also created on segments of the population. Then and it's really hard to to kind of take back or or not really. Or it's a very different case. Do you want to come back on that? Because I was wondering the same thing. Oh, like uh, the experience in LA, in Korea, or yeah, like how comparable yeah. is it to, uh, to the experience in Kuwait? Like for whom were the the houses built? Um, yeah, I think it's mainly for middle class uh, population who can afford uh, buying house. And at the time, the economy is rapidly growing, so housing prices also are growing quickly. So they actually people can. Uh, accumulate asset through buying house. So I think it causes some problem those who could buy house in like 80s and 90s, who has become very rich now and those who couldn't afford housing at the time is kind of um, fall behind. So uh, it causes some problem, but it is kind of one of the, um, I think it's similar with Kuwait in that regard is the kind of the most um, assured way of accumulating wealth uh, giving like for individuals in South Korea. So I think in that regard, it like, you know, it seems like the, the idea of housing welfare is similar in terms of its asset-based nature. Um, interesting. Uh, we have another question from Rima Fahad. Um, this question is to Nuno and Dari. She asks, um, can you share your recruitment process for the interviewees, um, for instance, the targeted demographic and how you reach them? And can you explain how one can read the network map that you shared uh, and how interview data is translated into the map? Yeah, I can. I obviously glanced over the, those details in my presentation, given the time available. But basically, uh, we started with um, people that we, through our desk research, thought were, were influential, but at the same time, we could test our interview script um, and potentially make some adjustments if they didn't work for the, in the QA context. So we kind of first reached out to people that we had a working co uh, co um, relationship with or that, you know, that somebody that knew somebody um, that allowed us to connect. And these, after these first, in, these initial interviews, we basically do, do, do the snowball sampling approach, which means that we go for the people or organization that were most often cited in the previous interviews. So we always kind of follow the data in, in that way. Um, and then when we interview those, we review again, who are the most commonly cited stakeholders, actors, and we try to interview them and then and, uh, and so on and so on and so on. It's very time consuming. It's, um, you know, Munira and Abdullah have done an outstanding work in, in, in being really annoying, basically in calling these people and emailing these people. Very often they're busy, their schedules are, 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 uh, are very difficult. And in fact, this was an adjustment we did to a method methodology. I was supposed to do two field trips and do these interviews myself. Uh, and instead of spending money in, in air, air tickets and hotels, we use that money to to buy to to basically um, 
higher, uh, Abdullah and Munira, and I have to admit they, they did a much better job than I could ever do um, because they were also able to do some of these interviews in Arabic, which I wouldn't be able to, and that was very, very um, beneficial. Um, in terms of how, Dan, you transformed those notes, these interview notes into network data, like I said, for each question, we know who that actor referred to in terms of organizations or people. And for each question, we then linked that actor to those people or organizations. And by the way, we, we never, we don't use individuals. So we always use the parent organization of any individuals that are mentioned. Um, and then we aggregate all the questions. We could theoretically do networks of just a group of questions, just questions having to do with information and just questions having to do with reputation or advice. But we, at this, at this point, we aggregated all the questions that we asked um, uh, to create this, this visualization, this, um, this network. Great, and then I see another question from Munira Mohammed asking, do we have any urban sociologists in the GCC um, to study the society? And can you recommend basically any sources on, on urban sociologists in the GCC? I think the Habi Molochi and Dave, Dave Davida Ponjini's edit, edited volume, the new Arab urban seems like quite good starting point. So I recommend to check the book and check the authors, probably helpful, I think. Any other thoughts on that? Uh, I've added a few names, a few more names uh, in the in the Q and A, uh, such as I think uh, Beirut Urban Lab is a is a very uh, wonderful you know organization research center uh, that has a good concentration of you know, excellent researchers such as uh, Mona Harb and Mona Fawaz, um, and also Oren Eftaker in Israel and Ben Gurion University also you know, a, a great expert, a source of you know, critical voices. Um, and also you can perhaps check out, I was going to type this into this, but you can probably check out the work of Yasser El-Sheshtawi, who is, I think, in a, currently no longer in UAE, but uh, paying a visit to a, a US-based university. So those will be quite an interesting source as a starter and perhaps an effort to expand by building upon their work. Great, that's fantastic. Yeah, I just see the, the typed answers now in the Q&A as well. Um, so thanks for that. And then another question um, from Marcos Francisco, um, which is more about kind of the segmentation of the population in Kuwait. Um, he says, if I'm not wrong, Kuwaiti laws do not allow foreigners to retire in Kuwait. Um, it's so I once their kind of their uh, employment contract runs out, they need to leave the country. So with this in mind, the question is what kind of, you know, quote unquote belonging can be created in the communities with these new plans and visions. There's a sense of detachment from the foreign population towards the cities they inhabit in Kuwait since they are temporary residents um, by law. So um, any thoughts on, you know, how do you foster belonging with, with what is kind of legally a, a temporary population? Um, I don't know who wants to start on that. This is a, a huge question you know, in Kuwaiti politics in general as well. If anyone knows how to create the sense of belonging, please also let, let, let me know because that's going to be very useful for many other places <laughs> beyond QA. Um, and, and yeah, definitely lots of academic kudos in, in there. 
Yeah, no, and I know that, you know, it seems like in, in recent years, the, the rhetoric has ramped up in terms of the, the government's desire to flip the, demo, the demography, as, as Dari mentioned, from 70% uh, uh, expat to 70% Kuwaiti. And I don't think they've given like a year by which that's meant to be completed. But, um, but, it, but I mean, certainly that, I, I don't know if, if you feel that that has had an effect or, or that this is kind of the feeling that, that expats have always felt that the, the government had, but now it's just more explicitly stated. I honestly think it was just a blurb by the prime minister of okay. the cup. I don't think it was a, a well-defined policy objective, uh, even though it seems like everybody wants uh, that outcome. But um, about, I think, 30% of the expat population is domestic workers. Uh, and uh, until Kuwaitis uh, express willingness to change their lifestyles when it comes to at least just domestic workers, not to mention all of the other expats that actually make the economy run. Um, I think this is just, uh, an, it remains an aspirational statement rather than a policy objective. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, Abdullah Khonini, who's done some work on on, on Nuno Ndari's project, I wanted to ask him to, to jump in. I think he had some input on this as well. So um, I'm not sure if you can hear me, hello. <laughs> yeah, we can hear you. Yeah, good. Uh, sorry to jump in, but it's 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 very uh, interesting question. It's a very intriguing one because it is an issue I think we're facing in Kuwait. When we look at the GCC level, there are so many countries in the Gulf that are actually working around this issue and they're trying to sort of have a golden visa or like long-term residency, while Kuwait probably is the only one lacking. But then there are some... There are some suggestions that have been discussed before, like for the urban uh, northern projects, the economic Harir uh, city. Um, in, in the original draft that is still in the parliament, there is this suggestion of like uh, foreigners or like non-Kuwaitis can basically work and live there and can own property. And they don't have to go through the kafala system, quote unquote. Uh, but then... Also, that is a bit problematic because when you look at, like, for example, the Northern Project, that means in the end we're creating two systems. We're creating a system where the Northern Project has as a free zone, and then the rest of Kuwait is still in the same old uh, Kafala and Act uh, kind of like system. So this is where uh, it's a bit problematic, but it, it is a huge question that hasn't been answered uh, in terms of like when you when you basically live here in the city and you interact with it and you live with it and Yasser Shishtawi uh, has a great uh, uh, input on this and um, when he lived in Dubai and his experience going through Dubai and having to renew his residency every year and how, how much that feels uh, navigating through the city. So uh, it is something I think that should be uh, addressed and have an input on. But I think with the current political and the government system, uh, I, I don't see us do working towards any like similar aspects like the other rest of the Gulf where they're now introducing golden visa and long-term residency. I think it's gonna take a while for that here. Thank you. Thanks for that. Um, oh, Duyong, did you want to add something? Yeah, I'm just curious about this, uh, the idea to re reduce foreign population, like migrant workers in Kuwait is, you know, will be acceptable even by Kuwaitis, because it means Kuwaitis need to work 
as like let's say like construction worker like taxi driver restaurant servers you know like meaning that you know having less like migrant population mean, meaning meaning quality people having more like tough jobs basically and i think it probably also further make more kind of class division even further more like visible like you can actually see you know, like class division within Kuwaitis as well. I think this kind of high ratio of migrant workers kind of, you know, hide this, I guess, actually existing class in, in Kuwait society, but the idea of reducing migrant population it will be, you know, even like possible to reduce by half or even less, so. Maybe Tari has some more ideas. And I know like with, with COVID in recent months, what we've seen is that there has some expats have left and there are labor shortages in, um, for instance, like domestic domestic workers sector, also in, in certain specialized sectors like accounting, there's a, a lack of, of expats to, to fill these jobs. Um, and so there, you have kind of two things going on. You have people having left due to COVID. You also have the desire on behalf of the government to nationalize the workforce. Um, and, and yet it's it's more difficult to nationalize in, in certain sectors than in others. Um, so I'm not sure how that, that's kind of going to be squared. But um, Daria, I don't know if you have anything to, to say on any, any of that. I mean, it's not an all or nothing argument. And if there is any change to, to happen, it's going to take, uh, it's going to be gradual and takes time. But um, the argument that, oh, uh, for every job that is, uh, I mean, that is taken up by a, by a non-Kuwaiti who would be forced out must be now occupied by a Kuwaiti. It makes the assumption that all of these jobs are actually essential. Let's not forget, this is mostly cheap low income, I mean, low wage, low education, low school worker. So there is suggestive, pretty strong suggestive evidence that the, the private sector is just rent seeking uh, from these uh, cheap workers. So um, not because these are essential jobs that cannot be filled by Kuwaitis, just because there's a better opportunity to seek rent uh, out of labor uh, from uh, cheap or, uh, I mean, cheap imported uh, foreign uh, workers. And so I think if the if the country sets the the incentives right, there could be movement made towards that uh, direction because this is not a this is not a a, a a nationalistic argument or anything. This is really like talking about urban governance. We have a majority of the population who has no political say in how the city is shaped, and that could be uh, that could be a problem. Uh, um, and so, just recognizing that problem makes. Uh, makes the argument uh, really necessary to really consider this uh, demographic imbalance and, and kind of fix it a little bit. Um, great, thank you. I know we're, we're running out of time. I had one question that I wanted to ask to to Young and Hyun um, if it's possible. Basically, I mean, given the the liquidity crisis that we see in Kuwait, given that you know there hasn't been an, an international debt financing law passed, um, and given that that we do have some challenges. In, in liquidity, I mean, what do you think the future is of, of the use of kind of smart cities and smart technology? Do you think it will, there, there is a future for it or, or do you think these projects will, will be abandoned? Um, basically, just, just wanted to know if you had any thoughts on that. And if anyone else wants to jump in, um, please do. Uh, right, I guess, I mean, from 
the technological perspective, I guess there needs to be a, a, a degree of a localization of these. So as, as we were presenting earlier, a lot of these technological kind of you know, innovations that are rooted in South Korean experience are largely to address the South Korean demand and for such to, such you know, urban living. Um, so the use of the pedestrian lighting or the traffic systems, you know, BRT, BRT, uh, uh, BRT and, and so on and so forth. Uh, all of these are effectively you know, reflecting the South Korean way of living uh, and, and the, the built fabric of South Korean cities. So um, in, in that regard, I guess, you know, um, there's a need of you know, a certain transition period for the localization of these technologies to meet the need of uh, the Kuwaiti uh, residents and, and Kuwaiti citizens. Um, and the question uh, is always uh, how much in a long term this uh, support for such localization process to take effect and it's going to be there. Um, and this is where I guess what uh, we are trying to highlight where uh, the frequent changes uh, to the leadership and also the lack of a kind of long-term perspective and then might also be coming in the way uh, for the transition to have some difficulties. Um, so I don't know whether Toyong, I mean, you may have something more to say. Uh, sorry, my video doesn't work, but um, yeah, I, I, uh, I think technology is only can be on aid. It cannot change like, any fundamental issue. So, um, and smart city is not a new concept. There was similar ideas about, um, yeah, there are like many different terms existed from like 90s, uh, even 80s. So this is, I guess, only an aid. So I guess the there are more bigger issues like uh, politics, economies and so on. So, yeah. Great. Um, thank you all so much. Uh, I we have a few minutes left. I don't know if there's anything else that that any of the panelists want to to mention that we haven't covered in the last couple of minutes. Anything else you want to add before we we end? Well, if I'm allowed to make to ask a question to my own uh, project um, <laughs> colleague, is what do you think explains those specific areas? Of, of of high segregation or um, I suppose a high concentration of, of expats. Um, what is the historical, um, um, where are the historical factors explaining those specific areas and not others? Because we know that you, you've done the analysis at the governorate level, but the governorates and the governors have absolutely no power and our findings in the urban governance side of things also kind of show that. So what, why there? I think the, the the most obvious suspect would be would be land use policies, but no, then you have to wrestle with the causality, like the direction of the effect. Did, did the land use create these enclaves, or did the enclaves draw uh, policymakers to make these uh, more mixed use and uh, uh, like in terms of lower transportation costs and more uh, multifamily housing? Uh, but like for example, one of them, the the Hawali area. I mean, Hawali used to be occupied by Kuwaitis in the past, and it used to. My family used to live there, and and uh, it was mixed use and everything. But over time, uh, when the the oil wealth came in and and the the suburban like the new suburbs were built, uh, Kuwaiti families either elected to go out or enticed to go out uh, to these suburbs and left these mixed use areas to expats where low transportation cost and accessibility are uh, is higher there uh, for them given their 
relatively lower incomes. Great, thank you. Anything else that anyone wants to add? Um, well, I guess otherwise we will we'll be looking forward to, to seeing the papers that, that result from these projects. They're really exciting. It's really nice to see where they've gone kind of since we, we started them a few years back. Um, but thank you all so much for joining us. Thanks to the panelists. And uh, we will have another Kuwait program uh, seminar coming up later in the term. So just keep a lookout um, on our website and on Twitter and all that. And we will see you all soon. So thank you. Thanks again um, for presenting your work to us today. And we'll see you all soon. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. See you all. Bye. Bye.